women's rights or Islam? The hypocrisy of the left, of the feminists and others in, in that claim to be about women's rights is just uh, mind-boggling. They think people are not going to notice their silence on supporting the women in the streets of Iran. Today, I sit down with Dr. Zudi Jasser, a practicing physician, proud Muslim, and the founder of multiple organizations aimed at countering the threat of political Islam, more commonly referred to as Islamism. We discuss the current protests in Iran, the role America should play in the Middle East, and the curious alliance between far leftists and illiberal Islamists, what Dr. Jasser calls the red-green axis. The relationship between AOC and Ilhan Omar is exactly the same in the U.S. Congress as it is in the U.N. between Iran and the Venezuelas and the Chinas of the world. They work together because they have a common fear and hate of freedom and liberty. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we get started, I have a message from the sponsor of this podcast. Inflation is at its highest in 40 years, and it's eating away at your savings. Interest rates are also on the rise. American Hartford Gold can show you how to protect the value of your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your portfolio with physical gold and silver. All it takes to get started is a short phone call and they'll have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k, and they make it easy. They are the highest rated firm in the country with an a rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. So don't wait, call them now. Call 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377 or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Dr. Zudi Jasser, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. It's great to be with you, Jan. Thank you. So we're going to talk about the protests in Iran and what's really happening over there. But before we do, how about you tell me a little bit about your background? So my family uh, escaped Syria in the uh, late 60s. Uh, my grandfather was uh, involved initially when the French pulled out. Uh, he was involved in democracy movement uh, with parliament, attempt at democracy. And then in 63, the Ba'athists took over, which is still the Assad regime today. Uh, my father finished medical school, escaped before he got conscripted into the military, and uh, came to the United States uh, and awaited political asylum. I was born a few months after they got here. And basically, I was raised in a small town in Wisconsin and learned that I could practice my faith uh, more freely in Wisconsin as a Muslim than in a Muslim-majority country like Syria or elsewhere uh, because I could pick and choose the things that I wanted to, that I wanted to practice, uh, the, the interpretations of the Quran and otherwise that uh, were the Islam that I learned from my grandparents and my parents and not the ones pushed down the throat of the people, whether it's in Syria, Iran, or elsewhere. Um, and since then, I, I, because of a belief and love for this country, uh, the United States and the, our Constitution, I served in the U.S. military for 11 years. I was on a military scholarship through medical school in Wisconsin and served uh, ultimately my last tour after serving in Somalia on a ship, uh, the USS El Paso. I was a physician to Congress for three years. And uh, now I've been in private practice in Phoenix since uh, 1999. You know, you're, you're a practicing physician. Yeah. But you, what you also do is you are involved in a movement to reform Islam from within. Yeah, so as a doctor, I learned that, uh, you know, you don't treat symptoms. You don't just suppress a cough or give somebody narcotics for pain. You treat the cause. And uh, after 9-11, we realized that uh, as much as we live in the, the safest, the most beautiful country and, and freest country on the planet, uh, they're, they're going to come here, the radicals. They're going to attack us because we are a threat to the theocrats of Islam and, and those who are afraid of freedom. And uh, ultimately, I felt that uh, we as Muslims are the only ones that can repair the problems within our house of Islam. And thus, history will show that either we stay to sleep, uh, like many of the Germans did in, uh, when Nazism rose, or uh, we woke up and, and pushed back against the fascists uh, of the theocratic fascists of Islamofascism, if you will. And I felt that I had an obligation to do that, things that you can do in this country that you just can't do elsewhere across the Middle East. And, you know, ultimately, it's about religious freedom. 
whether it's the women uh, uh, insisting that they aren't going to be forced by misogynistic men to wear a hijab in Iran or elsewhere, or those of us who, who uh, reject uh, the interpretations of Sharia that are pushed on us sometimes within countries like America, within our own faith communities, to the uh, ignorance of many around us that don't realize what's happening. So we have an obligation, I think, to treat the disease. And the disease, as we believe it, is not terrorism, that's a symptom, but rather political Islam. Let me put a historical context. Set aside whether you know anything about Islam. America was developed as a country, as an idea, that people came here to escape the establishment of the church through government. And that concept is actually what we're trying to do in Islam. And I believe is what, it's not only an enlightenment where you have classical liberal ideas, but actually to defeat the, the root cause, which is the Islamic state. So when you have a state identity that's wedded to a single faith, then the legal system becomes that faith's tradition. So is the Quran a source or the source of Islam, of the law? So at the end of the day, if you believe it's a source, you can live in America and, and, and be very patriotic. And if you believe it's the source of law and nothing else, then you're a separatist and you're actually an insurgent threat to the legal system that is the social contract of America. And that's why our organization is founded on the belief that we want to put an end to the concept of the Islamic State, no different than old theocratic states uh, uh, did not survive revolutions in the West. We want to put an end to the concept of military jihad. We want to put an end to the concept of caliphism and caliphates, that whole concept of Islamic supremacism globally. And ultimately, you know, blasphemy laws uh, and a lot of these other things stem from the concept of the Islamic State. And until the West understands that, we will never be safe from radical Islam, political Islam, and jihadists. I mean, this is essentially, you haven't said the word, but this is the distinction between Islam and Islamism. Right. right. Islamism is basically what these political movements are. And I think that's one of the successes our work at the Muslim Reform Movement and our American Islamic Forum for Democracy has had in the past 21 years since 9-11 is that Islamists, initially, they tried to say, tell the West, oh, don't use that term, it offends us, it means terrorist. It doesn't mean terrorist. In Arabic, it's Islamiyin, which are political movements animated and, and inspired by Islamic interpretations. So the Muslim Brotherhood is an Islamist movement. Hamas, an outgrowth of the, Isl of the Muslim Brotherhood, is an Islamist movement. Jamaat Islamiyah in Pakistan, one of the largest parties in Pakistan, is an Islamist movement. Iran's Khomeinists, even though it's the Shia variety of what I just gave you, or Sunni varieties, is an Islamist movement. So they are a party whose platform is based on theologians that put into place Islamic interpretations of Sharia or Islamic law. They believe that the flag is not a national identity based on all diverse citizens, but rather a national identity based on Islamic law and Islamic identity. So ultimately, we have to defeat that concept. American Muslims, I think, are uniquely positioned to say, you know what? We believe in a national identity that gives us religious freedom, is based in principles of morality and, and human rights that are derived from God, but not from a single faith. It's derived from a Western tradition of, of freedom of religion, Judeo-Christian history, and a, a liberty that separates from the theocratic uh, oppression. Islam is still pre-modern in its interpretation. It hasn't gone through a recognition that you protect the community by protecting the individual. It's still very tribal in its sense. And the radicalism in Islamist ideology legitimizes female genital mutilation, uh, in which they, they say a woman is born hypersexual, so therefore she has to have some type of surgical procedure done to her genitalia, which the uh, UN Human Rights Report identifies tens of millions that are done. It's, it's horrific and it's still a crime against humanity. We're trying to work with courageous organizations like the AHA Foundation and others to try to expose that in America, let alone globally. So they legitimize that. They legitimize honor killings against women that might decide to date or not wear the hijab or others where their uncles, their brothers have them offed 
from their family and they're just given a slap on the wrist for committing an act of murder in the West sometimes, let alone in Jordan or other Middle Eastern countries. So as you diversify discussion of the Muslim condition, you know, and the Muslim faith, you will actually then allow it, bring us dragging, kicking and screaming into the 21st century. Well, so this is the perfect moment, I think, to start talking about what's actually happening in Iran. Because it, it looks like there are people notably, you know, in response to a woman who, I, I, I don't know if it's proven now that she was, you know, killed for her, you know, I guess opposition to exactly mm -hmm. the kind of thing that you're talking about right now. Um, is, is that what's happening there right now? There have been three basically uh, uh, upticks in, in revolutionary activity by the people since 2009. And in Iran, there's a complete confluence between the, the military, the government apparatus, and the religious apparatus, which are completely unified in Iran, so it is a theocratic state. And initially there was the Green Revolution, which was basically an economic pushback by the workers in Tehran and in the larger cities, especially in, in 2009. Um, the Obama administration slept on that for a few weeks until they basically were pushed globally into doing something. And they slowly began to provide, you know, at least insist that companies help the revolution because the government at the time, just like they're doing now, turned off the internet and did other things. Then sort of went quiet, even through the Arab awakening because most of the people that started the revolution in 09 were tortured, put in the worst prisons in Iran. And uh, I'll remind folks that Iran is the same regime whose best friend is Bashar Assad, who used chemical weapons, who has basically uh, destroyed and killed hundreds of thousands over the past uh, eight or nine years since the Syrian revolution, uh, 10 years now since the Syrian revolution took place. So Syria is a client state of Iran bring you to 2019, during the Trump administration, there was another mass movement of people into the streets of Iran. And at that time, I think the Trump administration was vindicated that, that the, the strong pressure against the Iranian regime against any type of nuclear agreement actually then fueled the people to feel that they had support in the West. And what was different about that revolution was it wasn't just economic in big cities. It was actually in all of the cities in which the theocrats, the clerics, have universities in Qom and other smaller cities that have universities based in what infuses the ideology of the regime, the Islamic Supreme Council of Iran. Now comes the women's movement, which is now taken off. No different than the Tunisia revolution was started by that one individual that had his cart that set himself on fire. This uh, uh, hero, uh, Mahsi Amini, uh, basically took off her hijab, decided she was not going to wear it, and she was tortured and killed. And it just set off a stream of demonstrations and defense. And what I think is really amazing about this, about this movement is that it's men and women. Nowhere else in the Middle East have you seen this. Usually when it's women demonstrating in Saudi Arabia elsewhere, it's just women. It's not support of the, the, the patriarchal culture also. And you're seeing this in Iran, which I think is also more chipping away at the almost 40 plus year entrenchment of the Islamic regime. And I think ultimately, in the Middle East, you've had two choices. Tribal monarchical dictatorship, a military regime, which are secular socialist fascists, which are Ba'athists in Syria and Iraq, or you know, in Iran, it was the, the Shah, uh, and in Saudi, it's the, the king. And then that switched to Islamic regimes, two extremes, perhaps drinking from the same type of ideology, which is political Islam. One is top down, the other is bottom up, but essentially it's both tyrannical. Or a third option, which is liberty, freedom, that'll take some time to evolve. And now we're seeing this as a third permutation. So again, don't take an ahistorical approach. Each revolution is different. This seems like a remarkable women's rights movement. And I and don't see a ton of support for it here, which is kind of, which is strange to me. The hypocrisy of the left, the, the feminists and others in, in that claim to be about women's rights is just uh, mind boggling. You know, many of us in this space have called it the red-green alliance, the red being the socialists, Marxists, uh, far left uh, uh, historical uh, collectivists, if you will.
and the green being the Islamists, those who are animated by a political Islam, uh, a grassroots movement of Islamic supremacy, if you will. They find common enemies. So together they hate capitalism, they hate free thinkers, individual thinkers, anti-tribalists. Uh, they hate uh, those who believe in free speech and autonomy and individual rights and the impact that Western democracies has had on global economies. And ultimately, what unites them is what they're against. Left to their own devices, they hate each other. Uh, but yet, right now, they're so animated by what they hate. So the way to try to destroy America's foundations is to do that through identity politics. The identity politic movement of the far left, uh, whether it's Black Lives Matter or whatever it might be, uh, critical race theory, you know, they claim to be about protecting minority rights, but they're actually negating individuals. I'm a physician, and I'm seeing medical universities now opening talks by saying that somehow this land, they have to do the land use uh, uh, um, disclaimer opening, saying that this land was stolen from the people. And I mean, I can't believe it. this is part of a medical school education now. As a naval officer, the academies had a PowerPoint last week that was released that said, our military officers can't use the word terrorist anymore. Terrorism is, is an actual defined political movement that uses asynchronous attacks against innocent, unarmed civilians. That's what it is. And now that definition our military can't use because of how it gets interpreted. So they think people are not going to notice their silence on, on supporting the, their actual allies, which are the women in the streets of Iran. And by the way, it's not lost on the people in the streets of Iran. If you read the Farsi media, if you read Arabic media during the Arab awakening and others, uh, they realize that that's where the West lost a lot of credibility. So if we're going to have effective foreign policy, we have to be consistent. If we're really going to believe in our values, we have to have consistency abroad and at our dinner tables and domestically, uh, not about effectuating and to sending troops everywhere all the time. No, it has to be a principle-based approach where it's not just a, a utilitarian mechanism to have a common enemy, but rather about principles. And I think that's where people need to realize, you know, the relationship between AOC and Ilhan Omar is exactly the same at the, in the US Congress as it is in the UN between Iran and the Venezuelas and the, the Chinas of the world that are far left communists or, or whatever it might be, they work together because they have a common fear and hate of freedom and liberty. And then afterwards, when you know, the West has fallen, they'll, they'll fight it out amongst themselves? Is this the idea? In the long term, uh, yeah, they, they want to seize the property of uh, individuals to use for their own uh, means. Now, I think the reality is, if you look in Europe, for example, which is a bit ahead of us, uh, the, for example, the, the Socialist Workers' Party ultimately parted ways with the Islamists very openly because they realized that when they got positions of influence that they're like, oh my God, we don't, they don't share any values with us. Uh, they're theocrats and, and the far-left Workers' Party folks are anti-religion and anti, uh, uh, they're atheists typically. So ultimately, left to their own devices in the end, they will probably end up with a lot of internecine battles. You know, one of the reasons we don't want a nuclear Iran is because that would then necessitate a nuclear Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. you know, because of the Sunni Shia battle that exists. So whether it's a Machiavellian thing where they find a common enemy and in the meantime, you know, they, they forget their own differences, uh, the long-term strategy, I hope we don't have to wait to see how that turns out and we don't need to send troops and Afghanistan proved that it doesn't work. We have to, I think, be helping those on the ground take sides within the House of Islam. And that's why it's so important that people understand what political Islam is because you can't just let Darwin figure that out. Help those behind the scenes through intelligence, through media, through whatever it might be, platforming. Uh, many of us doing this work in the West and in the Middle East. Help those who share our values at least have the power to, to not be unarmed when it comes to the necessary tools to push back. Maybe very briefly, let's discuss this kind of Sunni Shia schism. Sunni in Arabic means Orthodox Islam. Out of the 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, 90% are Sunni. My family is from Syria, we're Sunni um, in, in the extraction. 10% uh, are Shia. That was an initial division that happened after the Prophet Muhammad passed, and there were four caliphs. 
Uh, the, the Shia tradition felt that the leadership of the Muslim community should be based on inherited uh, genetic familial transmission, which is why the Shia believe in sort of a clerical transmission of the 12 Imams. Right now there has been 11. They're waiting for the 12th Imam. Sometimes the Shia are also called Twelvers that believe in the 12th Imam coming. All traditionally uh, genetically transmitted from that, the tradition of the Prophet. So in a very loose analogy, if you compare Shia to Sunni, the Shia are more Catholic type, uh, uh, clerically based and the, the Sunni are more Protestant or, or more grassroots type based. Now having said that, it's Pepsi Coke right now. It's basically two flavors of the same problem, which is the Sunnis have a pseudo-clerical class, which are the Saudis of the world, the Al-Azhar University in Cairo and elsewhere, which are clerics that have become basically a ruling class for Sunni Islam, no different than the Khomeinists in Iran that are Shia. Um, they both believe in the same type of political Islam, which is the law should be inspired by only the Quran. The law should be written by only clerics, not by lay people. And people should be forced that the government is God, basically, that, that their job on earth is to interpret God's law and enact it by force through government. The resolution of, of Islam into the 21st century from our current 13th century status is only gonna happen not by resolving the Sunni Shia dilemma, but by defeating the cancer that's the same in both houses, which is political Islam or Islamic State concepts. There's been you know, many examples over the past decades of, for example, the U.S. being involved more or less for its own interests in the Middle East. But so there's a lot of suspicion about you know, U.S. intervention as a kind of useful thing, because you might you can end up with something worse than was there than was there before, right? Or are we really helping based on principles, or is this just are we just cynically, you know, projecting our own power as America? In my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, uh, one of my chapters is uh, I think the sixth chapter is about changing the paradigm, and I'm talking about changing the paradigm of our foreign policy through the 20th century. My grandfather, who I mentioned earlier, um, had basically evolved in his position when he was trying to get democracy started in Syria, thinking that America's influence not only was positive, but would help sort of push the Middle East into democratic movements. And obviously, not only did that fail in the 20th century, but when it was really ripe to happen in, in 2011, it was an abysmal failure since then. It wasn't an Arab Spring, it was an Arab awakening with a ratcheting back. Um, but ultimately this Game of Thrones approach of the West in which we sort of pick our kings and queens and we think that, well, this one's better than the other, not only burns any bridges of credibility with the people there, it's doomed to failure because it's not only artificial, it is un-American, it is, it is not who we are. And I've evolved in this, you know, I served in the Navy 11 years and then yet with that I left the Navy truly, truly believing that I never met a naval officer that would be sent somewhere in order to oppress or colonize somewhere. I really saw what we do as liberating forces. And I see our, our military as a very, very moral fighting force. Um, and yet in Iraq, we were painted as uh, oppressors, as colonialists, because that's what the Al Jazeera media, the Islamist media wanted to paint the West and blame us for all of their own problems. So bottom line is, is I've evolved because I thought ultimately there's no greater thing I, I could ever have seen than the complete destruction of Saddam's military and, and what he did. He's the, he's the Ba'athist of Iraq, no different than Assad's Ba'athism in Syria. And ultimately I think that was a good thing for the world. Now, in retrospect, um, it's doomed to failure because it's not organic, because it's artificial and uh, ultimately I believe in our Second Amendment because the only way to push back against true tyranny is to have the arms to do it. So I supported it in 2003 and four because I thought that people would never be able to do that. But I think in today's world, there are ways to have revolutions as we're seeing in Iran without foreign forces needing to support that in military standpoint. Um, and I think ultimately, because of the way it gets portrayed and because of the lack of organic nature to it, it's always fraught with far more expense, risk, 
and doomed to be failures than actually ability to succeed. And Afghanistan, I think, really highlighted a lot of that. The initial invasion was very moral because we went to get rid of the, the, the cells that were part of Al-Qaeda that had attacked us and, and, and attacked us on our soil. Uh, but ultimately, the occupation that went on for not only trillions of dollars, uh, but uh, the inability, I mean, the fact that we turned on a dime and left Number one, I think the exit was not only an abysmal failure, but was one of the catastrophic failures of American policy that Biden administration will have to live with forever, which is it will be reviewed that there could have been a way for us to leave after 20 plus years without having done it so incompetently as what Biden did. Because we could have done it where there was a very public handover to the, however corrupt it is, to the whatever government that exists in Afghanistan that had been protected by us and existed publicly handed over region to region until we slowly methodically left versus just turn on a dime, shut, the air, shut down the runway, don't use it, trap our people and we get 13 people killed by the Taliban-assisted Al-Qaeda groups or ISIS groups that were there and it just became a complete disaster and we lost not only the, the PR part of it, we lost our 13 uh, heroes and it sort of accentuated our failures over 20 years. But it also proved that there was no civil society generated there. I mean, look at revolutions in Tunisia and elsewhere. Tunisia, I think, is one of the silver linings of the Arab awakening. And even with no American invasion there, you had what I think was the greatest chance of success for liberation of Muslim populations, where in December 31st, 2014, Al-Nahda, which was the Islamic political party that was Muslim Brotherhood of Tunisia, lost an election after three years after the initial revolution. That is a huge success for the defeat of political Islam, greater than anything we've ever done, and we weren't even in Tunisia. So that then now has ratcheted back just three, four months ago because they're now reverting back to dissolving the parliament, getting a, a, a strong man back in power because the government was falling apart. There were, uh, uh, and now they're looming to have revolution 3.0 in Tunisia. And ultimately, just as the West, you might need to go through 6.0, 7.0, the French went through how many revolutions, ultimately until you get to democracy, keep our troops out of it. In Afghanistan, we actually suppressed normal evolution. And I compare it as a doctor to treating cancer. You give the patient chemotherapy, sometimes they get sicker, sometimes they die, sometimes they, they're not that bad off and then they ultimately get better and the cancer gets treated. So this is going to take some time in evolution. We should take sides for our credibility and also for our interests, because if we don't, the Chinas of the world, the Russias, the Irans are taking sides with our enemies, and they're making sure in a Darwinian way that the other side is armed, is, is fueled, and will defeat those who share our ideas. But if we're going to take sides, you can do it like we did in the Cold War. And this is what I advocate for now now that I've also matured in my understanding of what the American military can do and what, what it can't do. We no longer have any strategy in Washington globally about how we advocate for religious freedom and liberty. I was on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom for four years, uh, appointed by Senator McConnell, and, you know, the countries we spent most of the time in were Muslim-majority countries. And I remember going and listening to our State Department mistranslate things in Arabic countries. And I talked to groups and organizations in Saudi Arabia and Malaysia and in, in Indonesia and elsewhere that said, you know what, you guys aren't supporting the more moderates. You're supporting those who are just status quo so that there's no conflict. So all I can tell you is if we've learned anything through the Trump administration and elsewhere is that the way to defeat the establishment is disruption. Allow there to be disruption. It'll be more chaotic, but you will only get the, the curing of disease through disruption. And that's really what I believe. But you disrupt it not through military where you end up owning it like we did Afghanistan, but you disrupt it through low-grade, behind-the-scenes platforming. Okay, so I expand on that a little bit. Because again, that could sound very much like, you know, you're, you pick someone that's politically expedient for whatever reason and you support them. It's not about individuals. You know, it's like after the... Egyptian Revolution, they were, America was going to support the, one of the Google entrepreneurs that was Arabic and then the other. No, it's not about individuals. It's like in the women's movement now in Iran. 
It's not about one person, whether it's Mahdi Hanijad, who's a wonderful woman, who's done a lot of great work. It's about the, all of them. You platform all of them. Social media doesn't need one person that America gets behind. Yeah, you're right. That is a recipe for then making that person ineffective, actually. But actually promoting the principles and, def and, and standing behind free speech, giving them, making sure the, the internet's not shut down, helping the Elon Musks of the world open the satellites like they're doing in Ukraine and elsewhere so that they can communicate. Uh, Obama administration actually helped, as I mentioned before, turn on Bluetooth technology so that they could communicate point to point separate from broadband technology during the 2009 revolution. There are a lot of startup uh, you know, viral type organizations that we can help behind the scenes that don't have to be front loaded by American influence. I mean, look what the Russians and the Chinese are doing on our social media, on Facebook and YouTube to, to push causes that they don't, they don't care that much about, but they want to disrupt our own, our own societies. Why are we not involved in similar type of disruption in, in at least helping those that share our values? I find the Abraham Accords, for example, to be a, a perfect stepping stone and, uh, towards modernization, for example. And what was different about the Abraham Accords is that you now had Bahrain, the Emirates, and possibly, and the, they wouldn't have agreed had Saudi not been, even though Saudi Arabia hasn't signed on, those two countries would not have said yes had Saudi Arabia not also wanted them to. So you found for the first time clerics in the Emirates in Dubai basically saying, theologically, the Quran, the only state recognized in the Quran is Israel. So therefore, Muslims should support the state of Israel. For the first time, peace and recognition of the democracy of Israel is happening, not just because the kings say so, but because theologically they're getting some backup to it. So if the world's ever gonna be safe from caliphates, from not only ISIS, but just a future uh, uh, Islamic theoc theocratic tyranny, it's going to have to be through a liberation of Islamic thinking. And this is where my book talks about a paradigm shift, is that friendship in foreign policy is not a black and white phenomenon. It's not a binary. Either we hug the king or we tell the Putins of the world we're your enemy. And we, we can't have a bigotry of low expectations. What is your policy prescription for support of what appears to be a women's rights and mm -hmm. freedom movement in Iran? We have to be honest, and that'll then translate into effective policy. You talk to the Solzhenitsyns and the Natan Sharanskys, if you, if you talk to Natan Sharansky, he will tell you when he was in prison in, in the Soviet Union, he knew he was going to be free when? When he heard Ronald Reagan describe the Soviet Union as the evil empire, because we were finally open and clear about what we thought about their values. So just having a flag, talking about LGBT rights, wherever it might be, is, is, is not going to necessarily do anything unless we actually tell the Taliban in Afghanistan openly that they are evil, that they are a, a vestige of, of uh, you know, medieval, inhuman thinking. The problem is, is we were too often pushing hard power when that's not how you affect change, you, you push it through soft power, which is the, the media war, the, the intellectual war, and also the, the, the validity of what we represent domestically. And, and uh, you know, I think people don't realize what impact our own domestic weakness is having on these issues. I think they underestimate the, the impact that it's having globally. Or if we don't know who we are, we can't affect, you know, uh, foreign countries in a positive way. It'll always be destructive. It'll always be negative because we're so unsure and unclear of what, who we are that our, our troops, our State Department, our diplomats, uh, and, and our media will not have an identity of what the values are that, that we represent. And I can't tell you enough how many times I've had discussions with uh, left media, whether it's CNN, MSNBC, or, or others, where they will ask me, where, where are you getting these numbers of the Middle East that 30, 40% are Islamists? I said, this is what the Arab Awakening showed us. And, and then they'll respond and say, you know, well, who are we to impose our values on them? That, that's very presumptuous. And I said, 
I can't tell you how bigoted what you just told me is. It is a bigotry of low expectations to say, well, the Arabs are, and the, Pers you know, the Persian community, the Iranians are, you know, they don't want freedom. They don't want Americanism. Uh, they want basically theocratic control by the, the men in beards. I mean, is that what you're telling me? And this is the way the narrative goes, and nobody pushes back on that somehow, and we've lost what it means to be an American. And that's what critical race theory is about, and all of that is that they want to erase the fact that Americanism is the best idea, I think, that has ever come to, to mankind, second to the ideas that came from God in our scripture. One of the books that had a huge impact on me is de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. And in, and in that book, he talks about how Military dictatorships don't need God. Functioning democracies that are, especially a republic, uh, uh, needs God because you, you, you don't have to have martial law when people fear God and are gonna treat each other like brothers and sisters and, and, and not use force or coercion or terrorism when they think it'll have a political ends. And that's the success, the secret sauce in America is that the Soviet, the Russian constitution today might not be that different from ours, but their society is extremely different. And I think it has to do with the Judeo-Christian heritage in America. It's a very religious society. And as we lose our religion to identity politics and self-hate of the left, you are going to actually destroy what it is to be American and destroy the best tool you have against defeating jihad and political Islam. Because many of us Muslims want to bring Americanism into Islam so that we can defeat the theocrats in Iran and across the planet. American identity now has become basically guided by making sure you don't offend anybody and they quickly raise the flag of offense so that we don't have actual discussions. I mean, you saw a month or two ago, Salman Rushdie, one of the heroes of free speech, who wrote a fictional tale back in 1988 and the Iranian government targeted him, a religious ruling basically saying that if he's assassinated, this is great, you'll get $3 million. And he had to live under protection for years and ultimately has become an icon in the West of free speech of how, you know, one of the things our Muslim reform movement says at the top of its website is, individuals have rights, but ideas have no rights. Nothing should protect an idea other than debate to protect it so that you can debate it but not the idea itself. And Islam is an idea, it should not be protected. And yet the concept of Islamophobia is put out there by Islamic regimes to prevent criticism of the weak ideas that they have to insulate them from any critique. So Salman Rushdie gets nearly assassinated, stabbed multiple times on a stage in a school in New York. And it's hardly covered. They covered it for a few days, but people didn't realize the guy who, who tried to kill him was a, a devotee online of the Iranian Republican Guard Corps, which thankfully the Trump administration made it identified as a terror organization, but it was a state-endorsed a state military arm. Biden administration supports Rushdie. They had a good statement supporting Rushdie, but they said nothing about the root cause. Biden said nothing about the Iranian fatwa against Rushdie, about all of the ideologies that infused the radicalization. And in fact, Iran said, oh, just because this guy happened to act on whatever was said, that doesn't mean we had anything to do with it. And that was that, how it was sort of left out there in the open. So that tells you, when you wonder where the voices of Islam and modernity are, my gosh, the Salman Rushdie's of the world are still getting attacked. And we have nobody actually voicing protection for those of us that are trying to fight the real fight within the House of Islam that love our faith, but want to reject the theocrats. You know, the reason Iran can never have a nuclear weapon is, uh, you know, even in the Soviet, when we were in the Cold War against the Soviets, mutually assured destruction worked because uh, typically even the Soviet uh, Politburo and others did not want their children to die. Um, the Khomeinists, the Islamist terrorists, whether they're Sunni or Shia, suicidal death is, to them, immediate heaven. It's, it's a jihad to go to heaven. So this is why they can't have nuclear weapons. Um, Israel, which is right around the corner from them, uh, they could easily decide, well, we're gonna attack them. And uh, so this is, I think, very important. So what's the best mechanism? No, it's not. Regime change is, is done. Not only has that failed, but the concept that somehow we're able to do regime change not only has failed in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere, it's irrelevant. 
I'm telling you as now a much more educated Muslim, American Muslim, if you look at January 2011, overnight, every government within a few months in the Middle East was on its heels, if not falling apart. The United States had nothing to do with any of that. So as effective as regime change might seem, ultimately those governments will only be pushed back when the people are ready to do it. Now as a Syrian American, I can tell you, you know, I'm horrified at what the Syrian people went through in the past 10 years the, with the chemical weapons uses, the 10 million out of 20 million that are displaced. I mean, it's horrific. Should the US have done anything different? I don't have a good answer for you for that. All I know is if only we had prevented Russia and Iran from intervening, that that civil war would have ended much earlier. But it's the foreign intervention from them that caused it to go on and leave Assad in power. In the future, I think that we should have a short-term and long-term policy. Short-term policy is to do exactly what the Trump administration did with the Abraham Accords, is to work with those that have a vision that starts to chip away at some of the old things. Delinkage of the Palestinian crisis was one big solution, and that's what they did. We moved our embassy to Jerusalem. We uh, uh, basically uh, uh, got the countries on board that realized that Iran was the bigger problem in the Middle East. Long term, we pull back and say, listen, we're now going to begin to advocate for our ideas. Religious freedom abroad, free speech, the protection of minority rights, and movement towards modernity. So instead of simply putting into place schools of medicine like Johns Hopkins and Cornell and other do in the Middle East, start demanding that they start having schools of humanities, of literature, of art, of music, of poetry, journalism. This is what's not happening. The reason, and also free markets. Until you actually start having startups, small free market startups in these countries, which are entrepreneurs, you will, and that's why, what product has ever come out of an Arab country in the last 50 years? Other than oil, it's like zero. So that's not a coincidence that there's been no Islamic reform while you have no economic, small business, free market startups coming out of those countries. So that should be part of our policy, I think, is, is a, a capitalist, pro-trade, pro-free market startup uh, type, because as free, free people start thinking more about economic success on new ideas and products, they will also start to use uh, their scripture and other things in a more modern way. Yeah, it is very interesting. This, uh, I guess, label of Islamophobia is used constantly, it seems, and to, to shut down debate. And it just, when you talked about this bigotry of low expectations, it reminded me of something that my friend Bob Woodson once told me by having, of course, in the African-American or black American community, by having these oddly low expectations, that is rather insulting and itself very bigoted. It's, it seems analogous almost. It is. They've, Islam became racialized. And this it's part of the cancel culture phenomena, right? And thank you for covering our work because Every other week I saw coverage in conservative media about cancel culture. And yet I'm like, where's, where's, our, where's our story? Because yes, we're a small, you know, barely 1% of the population are Muslims in America, but globally it's a quarter of the world's population and we are canceled to the millions in, in Egypt, in Saudi Arabia, in Iran. These women are being canceled and they're being covered now this week because there's thousands in the streets. But when we talk about free speech online, et cetera, let's make sure Muslims who've been fighting and suppressed online are covered as part of this discussion in center-right center conversations about cancel culture and who it targets because they in, invoke Islamophobia in order to render us as somehow hateful. And it's amazing. If you Google online, you will see my name associated with anti-Muslim hate, with supposedly uh, um, the Uncle Tom, a native informant, all this, these pejorative commentaries about, if you talk to folks locally here in Arizona, nobody, anyone who knows me knows that that's just not true. My family is, is very much a believer in conservative, orthodox practice of the interpretations that we believe in. Uh, so it's just done intentionally to slander and libel our work so that they don't have to deal with the impact it has 
on the power of the establishment of the Islamic community. I speak to a lot of small groups here in Arizona where we're based uh, and nationally, and I tell them, listen, don't worry about getting mired in the internal concept of trying to understand the Quran and translations and what is Islam. If you understand what it is to be an American, you will be able to figure out how to join me. And I've testified to Congress eight or nine times about this issue, and always one of the first things I say, this country was founded in a battle against the theocrats. I remember uh, Congresswoman Spire from California. After I finished, she interrupted me and said, Zudi, who are you to be telling Muslims what is Islam and what is not, and coming here into Congress and preaching about you know, Islamic reform? That's not really your role. You're not, a, you're not a recognized cleric in Islam. She said, I'm Catholic. I would never push back. I said, ma'am, that's a great example. I said, these halls of this Congress were founded by men, and, by men and women who believed that they would not take orders from an organized church, from a theocratic establishment of that church in these halls, that this was going to be a separation of church and state, if you will, as we defined it in 1776 and 1789 when our Constitution came to fruition. And it was just amazing to me the hypocrisy that Americanism as an idea, where everybody could be American, that ultimately that pushed back against establishing religion through the government and that our first freedom was religious liberty, that that's something she couldn't even understand that that's the position I came from. So we then in our Muslim Liberty Project teach our kids, we tell them, you are Americans that happen to be Muslim, not Muslims who demand to be American. And this is the identity crisis that you're talking about, which is that so many now in the left and the progressivists are saying, we are from this race or that race, we're gonna destroy all the foundations of America because we've been aggrieved by the American white person, whatever that is, and it's all about race and not about uh, uh, any ideas that they wanna defend. Because if you look at young Muslims that come to the West, that are radicalized, they get told by imams that they will die for if they die killing the evil Westerners, they will go to heaven. So they find something they want to die for, which is jihad. The only way to counter-radicalize that is not to say how bad that is, but to find something else that somebody believes in that they would die for. I would never die for my faith. I, that's between God and his other followers. You know, I believe that God doesn't need me to die for his faith, but I joined the Navy because I would die for America. Because if I'm not willing to die for the American Constitution, then my kids are not going to have a, a country. Then they're not going to be able to have this ability to, to be protected by this country. So, so ultimately, if you dissolve the foundations of what America means, you've not only lost the sovereignty and the protection and the security by letting millions rush in that may include those who threaten us and others, but you also then lose the very idea that can protect you against those to, to counter-radicalize. So to many in the West, it's paradoxical given that there is a genocide being conducted by the Chinese regime versus the Uyghur people in, uh, in China that Muslim-majority nations around the world aren't condemning this and acting to stop this. It's because these Muslim-majority countries are run by tyrannies. They're, they're run by uh, uh, tribes or um, uh, military dictators that only care about what is economic to them, what is economically feasible for uh, their short-sighted um, uh, game when it comes to their macroeconomics of who, who they're serving. And, and at the end of the day, it's not about being Muslim. They use Muslim, you know, it's interesting, Saddam Hussein, when he was losing control of the Iraqi people, added scripture to the Iraqi flag and, and started to talk about the Palestinian crisis and other things that he didn't, couldn't care less about, but he used it in order to rally the peoples. And right now, the governments of these countries think they're God and they can basically dispense with populations like the Uyghurs and others because they want to maintain economic operations in the billions with the Chinese government and others. And if you look at the Uyghur population, Two to three million are sitting in a camp. Two to three, 14 plus million Uyghurs in China are, are forced to sometimes eat pork on, on the spot, are forced to tear up and, and throw their Korans down the toilet, 
are forced to uh, um, eat during Ramadan when we're supposed to fast, and that's how sometimes the, the government will prove and deprogram them from their Islam. This is why we have a responsibility in the West. Our, our media needs to be honest. If they truly don't want uh, uh, a, a genocide to happen, then spend the resources to expose what's happening. Show the satellite images of what's happening in these camps. They're, they're, op they're out there and begin to talk about not only the religious crimes against humanity, but the harvesting of organs. The medical community recently released a, a meta-analysis of studies that were shown that looked at organ transplantation research done in China, and it exposed the fact that most of the research openly showed that the definition of brain death in Chinese transplant programs was so bizarrely inappropriate that it was actually harvesting organs from people that had not necessarily died. And odds are, as we saw in some of the anatomy, anatomy things that were, that were going from museum to museum, that many of the bodies being used in these displays were actually from the Uyghur community and other minorities that were being tortured. It starts with highlighting an obvious crime against humanity, which is happening to Muslims. And what's amazing, it also highlights the hypocrisy of the Imran Khans in, in Pakistan, who was a prime minister that basically openly said how much he, cho he supports the Chinese government and openly rejected the fact that they were doing, and he, what he said, here's a so-called Muslim leader that said that they were basically targeting a terror threat in China. I can't tell you how much I feel for, for their plight. There have been heroes like Ennis Cantor and others that have been trying to, to raise awareness of, of the plight of the Uyghurs. It's amazing to me how much the UN has been out to lunch on this, as they are you know, uh, on many things. Regarding this organ harvesting crime against humanity, I've heard from reputable sources that there's actually a market for Muslim organs for transplants to Muslims. That's interesting. I don't know if that's coming from Chinese government propaganda or if it's coming from Islamic apologe apologetics where the, the Pakistani regime or others are trying to explain away what they're doing. I don't know. Bottom line is it's corrupt. It's evil. And uh, as the old saying goes, for evil to, to succeed, good men need to do nothing. Good men and women need to do nothing. And uh, hopefully that can change. And any final thoughts as we finish? I do think that people underestimate the importance of those four or five million Muslims in America as far as being the head of the spear in some of these domestic issues that are not faith issues, which is uh, our foundations, our, our free speech and all these things. And I hope people can begin to find those Muslims in their communities and begin to platform them, whether it's platforming them in their faith, in their church and synagogues, in their academic institutions and their local universities and community colleges with their politicians in meetings with their government officials or in meeting with businesses. So thank you. Um, well, Zudi Jasser, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. It's great to be with you, Jan. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for joining Dr. Zudi Jasser and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kalek. Mm -hmm.